tonight. Just pray that you'd bless this time we spend together, bless the reading of your word, the study of the prophets in particular. God, I pray that you would help us to make sense of the Old Testament in a way that's useful for our personal growth so that we could read the word that um, transforms. Help us to understand it in a way that brings new knowledge that changes the way we think and act. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so let's start with the map. Y'all sick of the map yet? Nope. That's the right answer, Vince. Extra points. Okay. Hey, Brian. I'll have you know, last night, Vince was actually reciting it. Well, that's good to know because he's fixing to have to do it again. (laughs) (laughs) Every time I draw this map, it gets a little worse. I'm sorry. Y'all can follow it though, right? I'm sorry, guys. I thought he was proud of you. Close enough, okay? All right, global global warming. There we go. Okay. So I'll just write him in this time. So we're saying Eden is here. Calling that Babylon. 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 Ur. Israel. Egypt. Okay. Vince, go for it. Eden, Ur. Israel, Egypt. Israel, Babylon. Very good. So say it louder. Eden to Ur to Israel to Egypt to Israel to Babylon to Israel. And that is the whole story of the Old Testament. So let me give you a slightly fuller version. We do this every time. So God created Adam and Eve in the garden. Promptly they sin. He kicked out of the garden. They multiply. Sin covers the earth. God destroys it through a flood. Repopulates through Noah, whose descendants moved down into Persia. From Ur, Abraham is called to follow the one true God. He's promised to have this land. He has a son, Isaac, and then Jacob, and then the 12 sons of Jacob become the children of Israel who move to Egypt in a famine, end up being slaves until they cry out to the Lord, and Moses delivers them by the Lord's hand. They receive the Ten Commandments, wander for 40 years in the wilderness. They enter the Promised Land, take over under Joshua, and then they rule by judges. And then there's a united kingdom for three kings, Saul, David, Solomon. The kingdom splits in the north and south. The northern kingdom immediately goes into idolatry. The southern kingdom remains a little faithful, but is always one generation behind. The northern kingdom sins. God sends Assyria to destroy them and scatter them. The southern kingdom repents and so is spared for a time. Then Babylon comes and destroys the southern kingdom, takes them back to Babylon where they live in exile for 70 plus years. And then they are sent back home when Persia takes over where they come and rebuild their temple and rebuild the wall around Jerusalem and await the coming of the Messiah. And we, 400 years of silence, move to the New Testament. That's the story we've been studying. So this is week seven of that study. We've detailed Tim to the beginning of Genesis. And so we covered, I think you did what, creation, flood, and Abraham. And then we promptly moved through the rest of the Torah after that. So we look at the three sections of the Old Testament. There's the Torah the writings, and the prophets. Torah includes which books? First five. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Once we leave Genesis, basically all of the other books, Exodus through Deuteronomy, happen in what we call the Exodus. So it's all written by Moses during that time of wilderness wanderings. And then from there, we covered the, the period of time in Israel. So we went from the conquests to the destruction of the kingdom. So we went through books-wise. We did Judges or Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. We covered a lot of history over that time. Now tonight, what we're going to cover is the section of Scripture called the Prophets. So that's what we're going to dive into. You have those listed there, um, and I just want to make a few notes about that. The English version of your Bible is a little different than the Hebrew version would be. So in the Hebrew version, of course, it's, it's the same books, but it's just divided differently. We've said law, writings, prophets. We don't divide it out quite like that. So what we're looking at tonight is what we call the prophets. And if you say how many books are there in the section of the prophets, I'm going to say 14 or 15 or 16. Depends on what you count. Okay, so you'll see on the outline here, 
For sure, there's 12 minor prophets. And minor here only means short. Right? It has nothing to do with how important or significant their message is. It's just they're very short books of the Bible. If you've read through the Old Testament, has anybody read all of the book of Isaiah? Or Jeremiah? Or Ezekiel? Or how does it feel to sit down and read one of those in one sitting? That can be very overwhelming. But how many of you have read Jonah in one sitting? You could tell the whole story of Jonah in a few minutes. You could sit down and read the entire book of Obadiah, because if you read less than the whole book of Obadiah, you're a really lazy reader, right? Or Malachi is very short. It's like a page and a half. Obadiah in some Bibles isn't even a whole page. So minor just means that there's, there's short books. So in the Hebrew Bible, this was usually found on one scroll. So really they would say this was one book of the Bible, the 12, 12 prophets made up one book. Then there were major prophets, which just means long. So depending on who you ask, there's either three, four, or five of those. So three would be Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. In the Hebrew Bible, Daniel is not included in the list of the prophets. He falls into the section of the writings, one because he's older, second because he's different. If you read Daniel compared to the other prophets, right? a lot of history, right? It, it, in some ways, it reads more like 1 and 2 Samuel or 1 and 2 Kings would. And then in other sections, it reads more like the book of Revelation does, right? So they didn't quite know what category to put it in, so it didn't end up in the list of the prophets. Now, when we talk about the prophets in English, though, we usually include Daniel. And then, of course, Lamentations. Who's read Lamentations? What's that book about? Sorrow, sadness. That is also usually counted in with the writings rather than the prophets. However, uh, who knows who wrote Lamentations? Jeremiah. And Jeremiah. And what was Jeremiah? One of the prophets. And so he wrote one of the big major prophets. And so usually in English settings, we do lump that in to the prophets. So if you say, like, so there was a video I was going to show you, but I hate technology and it didn't work out. Um, I'll, I'll tell you to look at it. They say there's 15 books. And you look at my list, like, well, there's 16 or 17. Okay. And you, you'll see at one point which version of the list they're using. But that's why there's differences. So that's what we're talking about is those books and those stories and really those oracles. So before we get really into their main content, let's try to define what a prophet is. This is very important in our, especially in our modern setting, because we use the word prophet much more specifically, much more precisely than the scriptures do. So somebody wanted to just venture a definition of, well, let's first, let's define prophecy. Then we'll move to the person doing it. What's prophecy? What makes something prophetic? God spoken. All right. God spoken is one answer I've heard. What else would you say? Future? Future. Truth? Truth. Truth. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, certainly, if God is a source, it, well, it must be. Forth telling. Uh oh. Somebody's, somebody's read something before. <laughs> Do what? A message from God. I like, I like the word message. Message. I want to point at God. Message. Message. Message from God. Okay, so here's what goes wrong in English. When we think of prophecy, we almost exclusively think in terms of foretelling, telling the future. Almost, compared to the whole, almost none of Old Testament prophecy is prophetic, if that's how we mean the term. Now, that's not to say that there isn't prophetic scripture. There's a lot of it. There's also a lot of prophet scripture, and most of it is not telling the future. So here's... Here's the definition. A prophet, first and foremost, is a messenger. Oh, that was sloppy. <laughs> messenger for the Lord. Even in the New Testament, this distinction is continued to be used. Anytime you speak and the source of what you're saying is God, you are operating in a sense as a Prophet. This is what people get mixed up in in the debate over speaking in tongues and prophecy found in 1 Corinthians 14. 
and people envision both of those things incorrectly, and so they're trying to figure out why Paul likes one over the other, and neither one of the things they're thinking about is actually what Paul is talking about. Because at one point, if you speak in tongues and someone interprets, then it's prophecy all of a sudden. All right, well, how come that counts as prophecy? It's prophecy when God is the source. So the idea of all of these prophets is they are messengers on God's behalf. And I don't remember if I mentioned it. We started Malachi Sunday. Does anybody know what Malachi's name is? <coughs> My messenger, literally. But yeah, and that's going to be God's messenger. My messenger. And that's what the office of prophet really is. So all of these guys who are prophesying, the point is, is God is the source. So a message is prophetic when the source is God. So the first two blanks are messenger and source. All right, next. So the vast majority of Old Testament prophecy is foretelling. Forthtelling rather than, you can fill that one in. Foretelling. There you go. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying that prophecy never does this. There's plenty of texts that are this. I'm saying most of them are this. Okay? This is certainly in there. The vast majority of them are in this category, however. Okay? So, forthtelling. God's just giving a message. It could be about him. Could be about his character. Could be about Israel's sin. Lots of different things, but it's mostly foretelling. All right, context of the prophets. So here's what we're going to do. All prophets can be dated in relation to one major event. Oh, who said exile? Exile? Oh, that's a guy we're going to make that work for. It. Exile. <laughs> y'all, y'all are getting too nerdy. We're going to have to up the game. <laughs> I don't know. All right, so all prophets can be dated in relation to exile. Now, technically, we can date them in you know relation to anything. Exile is most important for them because it's also connected to their topic. So when we say exile, we're talking specifically about when God's people are taken by, by the Babylonians out of their land back to Babylon. Okay? So we also include Assyria came and destroyed the northern kingdom. They did not take them into exile. They just scattered them. So when we're talking about the northern kingdom, we're kind of talking about the Assyrian event. When we talk about the southern kingdom, we're talking formally about the exile. Does that make sense? So we would talk about a prophet being pre-exile, during the exile, or post-exile. Does that make sense? All right, what would Daniel be? During during, right? Because a lot of his stories are actually in Babylon. It's while they're there doing things. What would Malachi be? He's post. He's a good deal post, right? He's almost 100, 150 plus years after the initial return of people. So he's post-exile. Right? You know, it's kind of going, you know, where the next one will be. But Isaiah. Pre, right? The, the famous Isaiah prophecy Isaiah chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died. We're talking about kingdoms of Israel down here. So all prophets are dated based on that. So when you're studying the Bible, when you're reading prophecy in the Old Testament, what I'm going to encourage you to do is figure out where it goes. Is it pre-exile? Is it during exile? Or is it post-exile? Now, what is the simplest way to know which one of those three it is? Study Bible. That's actually that's the answer I'm going for. Is the study Bible. Now some of them, if you just read the content, you read Jonah. Where would Jonah fall? It's pre, right? What's going on in Jonah? He still has a nation. He's worried about the Assyrians, which is Nineveh. So context can tell you. But if you don't know the context well enough, the the next best thing is to just open a study Bible. Blaze is pretty excited. Sorry. Open a study Bible, and it will tell you. And so and I do encourage you, when you read a book of the Bible, especially if you have a study Bible, every single book of the Bible has an introduction. It'll tell you a little bit about who wrote it, when, what the circumstances were. If you read that, you'll be able to filter the text 
a lot more. So just think about the implications on the book of Jonah. So we know Jonah is a prophet called by God to go preach repentance to the Ninevites. And the Ninevites, Nineveh is the capital of what nation? So Jonah's here. He's supposed to go preach the Ninevites here. What's that nation going to do in due time? It's going to come down and destroy Israel. So why does Jonah not want the Ninevites to see God's mercy? They're literally the enemy. It's not just at the borders. It's a step beyond that. These are our oppressors. This is the nation we're scared of. We don't want them to be saved. We don't want them to repent and know God's mercy. So knowing the context of a book helps you understand, if you know what's going on here, you can make sense of the text a little more. Same thing with Malachi. When we're reading Malachi on Sunday mornings, we're talking post-exile. So we've come back, and what have they recently rebuilt? The, the temple, right? And what kind of things are they worried about? Reestablishing what they lost. They're living in a day where they're looking back to the golden age. They're looking back to the time when things were good. So knowing where it dates pre, post, or during helps you understand what's going on in the book. All right, next. Most prophecies emphasize covenant. Most prophecies emphasize the covenant God made with the Israelites. Somebody give me a definition of covenant. Promise? Promise is part of it. Deal. Deal? Deal's not bad. I can work with deal. Contractual Contractual. That's a lot about uh, syllables. Contractual binding agreement. Okay. I like the definition just because it's short and it's it's alliterated, a bond in blood. But I can work with several of the others that have been given. So this bond is made by whom? God. God. This is God makes this covenant. Now, what covenant in the Old Testament are we talking about? Abraham. Abraham. Isaac. Isaac and Jacob. Well, Isaac and Jacob are part of the Abrahamic covenant. Jose, the people great. That's that's the Abrahamic covenant. Did anybody say the Mosaic covenant? What about the Davidic covenant? Well, which one? Yes. All right. What do we call the Old Testament? The Old Covenant. Singular. See that? Is there only one covenant in the Old Testament? Depends on how you ask the question, right? There's lots of little covenants in the Old Testament. But there's really, there's one old covenant. You could call it the Abrahamic covenant. You could really call it the Mosaic covenant. That's how Jeremiah talks about it, that we've got this covenant. But there's a new covenant coming. So we can use this word plural or singular. And so we kind of mean both. It's a grab-all sort of term. We're talking about Abraham's covenant. We're talking about the Mosaic covenant. We're even talking about the covenant with David and Hosea. We even referenced the covenant with Adam, which isn't expressly called that in Genesis. So what kind of covenant would Adam have with God? Was there any relationship between Adam and God? Were there stipulations in that relationship? Yeah, I can think of some specific ones. Right? One, be fruitful and multiply. Two, don't eat that fruit, right? <laughs> so, and were there consequences for breaking any of those stipulations? Yeah, so that's that's a covenant. There's a binding relationship between Adam and God. So, covenant's a key term throughout the Old Testament that God enters into covenant. Now, here's how the prophets summarize that term. So, when they say covenant, you'll see that if you Google search this expression, you'll see it come up a lot of different ways in a lot of different passages in the Old Testament. Here's the expression. That he would be their God, and they would be his people. Like, well, which covenant is he talking about? And that's all of them, right? Every covenant could be summed up in that. That's the point of there being a covenant relationship. I'm God, he says. You're the people. That's the relationship. God to people. So the prophets, by and large are emphasizing that covenant with God and his people. Now next, the prophets are rich because of this in Torah imagery. 
What big, big, big event happened in the Torah? Gets more book space than any other event. The Exodus, right? Gets a whole book named after it, but Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy all have to do with that one major historical event. When you read the prophets, you'll see that referenced almost more than anything else. There's always pointing back to that time God delivered them. It's, it's almost like God is saying, hey, I saved you. You owe me. In fact, <laughs> that's the New Testament pattern, right? Where do good works come into the pattern? After salvation, right? They don't, they don't save us. They're produced by salvation. God saved his people, then gave them a law, right? He didn't give them a law and then saved them. The order is even in the Old Testament. That did not change between the Old and New Testament. The prophets referenced that a lot. All right, so let's talk about the message. Um, you read this in different books, and I've actually, while well, I'm thinking about it, on the back, I have some specific references. These are just, well, one is study Bibles that I like. The next two are specifically about how to read the Bible. These are both excellent books, especially the How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, because that book is only like 200 pages. The other book is like 800. So, you know, that one's good, and it surveys... <laughs> Every type of book in the Bible and how you should read it and what you should pay attention to. But across the board, you'll see some very similar things in any book like that about the message of the prophets. Number one, the prophets call out what? Sin. It's one of their main things. That's what we call it. Forthtelling instead of foretelling. Because when are the people sinning? Later or now? Yeah. Now. Yes. This is, well, but, yeah, okay, fair enough. So, but he's pointing out, this is what you are doing. This is what you have been doing. And most of the future isn't what you're going to do. Rather, it's what I'm going to do, God is saying. So here's what you're doing. Here's the things that are going wrong. Now, I'm going to summarize all of that down to three categories. Now, we could get a lot more precise than this. So the first type of sin that he calls out would be, he calls out sin religiously Golly. <clears throat> religiously so what main sin are we talking about here idolatry, idolatry. idolatry. alright so what, what is idolatry worshiping other gods putting anything above God so we would say putting anything above God now in their context it was it was more specific than that right so Worshiping created things. So, can you think of any Old Testament examples of this? Ashtaroth, Baal, Dagon, Dagon the half fish man, it's like the merman god. He's an interesting creature if you look into him. A golden calf. Oh, that's good. Um, most of these gods, it's not just that God's people are bowing down and worshiping something they made. Okay? There's an ideology that goes with this. God's require whatever you worship, you sacrifice to. That makes sense. Do we still sacrifice in the New Testament? Yes. Yeah. It's just not animal sacrifice, right? What do we sacrifice? The, the whole body, right? The whole will of your whole person. This is your sacrifice before God. You surrender your worldview to the biblical worldview. So, what would you sacrifice in another idolatry? Right. Those who worshipped Molech. What did he require? They would pass their children through the fire. And that's a reference to what? You killed them. Yeah. They would sacrifice children to the Lord or whatever they believed in. And in some cases, they, they did it to the Lord thinking they were doing the right thing. These are not just, well, when you think of idolatry, I don't want you to think of people bowing down to like a stick. That certainly happened, but that stick was an ideology. And what God's people were good at doing was, well, I won't bow down to Bell directly. I'll just incorporate those things about Bell into our version of religion. Let's just call that Yahweh. Because isn't God really the real God? And we'll just pretend those things about Bell are really true about Yahweh. Do we ever do that in the New Testament? I mean, sorry, well, New Testament era in the Christian church? Can you give me an example? Some people do that. Yeah, Allah and the God of Christians is the same God. No? 
No, not at all. What else, what else do we do? Worship of Earth. That's that's literally old paganism creeping its way back in. Okay. Astrology. Oh man, astrology is a big one. <laughs> okay, so we have paganism, so Earth Earth-based worship coming in in certain ways, and uh, astrology is actually pretty big. A lot of people want to, you know. Oh, there's just so, so many. So I heard there, there's Christian tarot card readers now. I heard Christian that tarot card readers. I have. I heard that. I heard it. There's out. some passages in the Old Testament I'd like for them to read. Yeah. No, it was on. Uh, it's recent. I can't remember where I heard it. Yeah. Not with you. I'll just sit over here. Yes. Yes. Wow. Okay. Syncretism. It's syncretism. There you go. That's that's where we're going. Idolatry a lot of times wasn't idolatry in a pure form. It was idolatry in the form of syncretism. Let's take elements of that worldview and let's bring them into our own. Let's make that part of Christianity. We even have a word for that in Christianity. Call it. <laughs> that's not. That's not the one I was going for. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> okay. Uh, we baptize things into Christianity. But we'll just take it in as long as we call it Christian and fully absorb it. Easter Bunny. <laughs> okay, sorry, we'll keep going. Um, <laughs> am I, I'm going to get myself fired. Okay, probably not in this group. Just don't tell anybody else. Okay, that's religiously. Let's move on. So, also, politically. Now, we could use this in a multifaceted way. Um, how Israel interacted with its neighbors was a big deal. And it's not all hippie Jesus interaction with the neighbors. You're supposed to be nice to everybody. Sometimes their alliances were even condemned by God. Who they're, who they're hanging out with was condemned by God. What the king was doing would be condemned by God. In fact, all the kings of Judah were measured by whether or not they were like the good king. And who was the good king? David. David. Well, in what sense is David the good king? He didn't, he didn't do idolatry. Now, we could get real formal and be like, well, any sin, if you're put... No, not in the formal sense. No, David never committed idolatry. He was permanently and 100% always faithful to Yahweh. A lot of the kings of Israel were not. What did they invite into the land? They would set up temples to other gods, pacify the people. It's good PR, right? We got a lot of people. Let's spread out. Let's let's be inclusive. Let's do all of this stuff, and God judged that. There's one king, Om, Omri. I always forget his name. I always want to say Omni, but that's the omnipotent stuff. Omri, world history was great king, expanded the borders of the kingdom, and he did a good job. The Bible has like one paragraph about him. He put up idols. He's a horrible guy. Move on. That is the judgment. That's how it works. God judged his rulers from that perspective. How did they handle politics? Number one, Hezekiah got judged for bringing the Babylon. Oh, yeah, that's a beautiful example. Look at the treasures. He was showing off the treasures of Israel to a foreign nation. He got, in trouble, got judged for it. Even David, when he took the census that he wasn't supposed to take. A lot of political situations going on. All right. Do you, do you think in today's church... There's a big movement about bringing homosexuals into the church, into, into the pulpit, and other places. I would say there's not a big movement in the church, but there is a big movement among people who call themselves Christians. Okay, I'll go along with that. So, um, yeah, I, I would say that one's as big enough a deal to. If y'all are doing that, I can't. I, I can't even say you're in the same camp as me. Like that, those things are so abundantly obvious in Scripture that I don't. I don't know how you do it at all. So. You call yourself Christian. Yeah, right. I mean, make a new religion. You know, in America, we have freedom. You can be wrong. That's okay. Like, uh, it's kind of like uh, <laughs> being pro-abortion and being a Christian. I don't see how that works. Oh, and unfortunately, <laughs> the vast majority of evangelicals were at the time of Roe v. Wade. Uh, shameful American history there, uh, especially our own denomination. Uh, oh, okay. I don't want to go there. I'll get sad and Sorry. wrathful and have to calm down. And I wasn't born yet, so it's like really judgmental. Like, you gave me this 
Heritage, student here. Okay, I'll come down. Never mind. So, <laughs> prophets call out sin, religiously, politically, and then number three, um, socially. Certainly, you're going to see religious the most. This is God's major concern. But surprisingly, social issues, and I hesitate to even use the word social justice in today's politically charged lingo, but we used to call it that, and it wasn't a, a, a wicked term. Um, but there is social justice was a major concern in the prophets of the Old Testament. And so the neglect of the vulnerable is what we mean specifically when we say social justice in the Old Testament. The neglect of the vulnerable, which in the Old Testament is consistently referenced with three terms. You have the widows, the orphan or fatherless is what you'll see in a lot of translations, and the foreigner. So those three groups are regularly brought up as God bringing wrath on his people because they've not taken care of the widow, the orphan, or the foreigner. So you can see that in Isaiah 1 and in Isaiah 58. There's some pretty um, harsh criticism against Israel for not taking care of the, the widow and the orphan. Jeremiah 22, um, likewise, it's, it's all three. So you see the... James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Yeah, you, so you see the same lingo in the New Testament, except foreigner is not often used in the New Testament, interestingly enough, because in the New Testament, the Christians are the foreigners. Yes, yeah, so it's an interesting shift in lingo. The, technically, it's not a shift in theology. It's just shift in perspective. So, neglect of the vulnerable. All right, the prophets anticipate, because of this sin, a lot of prophecy is about what God is going to do in response to that sin. What do you think a good summary word for that is? Judgment. You know, either of those would work. Wrath is what I put in my outline, but you could put judgment. That's totally fine. This is God's just anger being poured out. Now, I want to fill in the next two blanks, and then I want to go back and look at a, a passage in Isaiah that illustrates some of this. Also, the prophets foretell, so not foretell, this is the foretelling aspect, foretell coming salvation. It's like, there's a lot of, I'm going to destroy you, and hardly any of you are going to survive. But I'm going to do a really cool thing with those who do. There's that sort of thing. So salvation and ultimately restoration. Wrath, salvation, and restoration. All right, now open to Isaiah chapter 7. This is probably my single most delighted passage in all of the Old Testament prophets. It's just one of the coolest prophecies that ever existed. Um, quoted, you, you'll know several of these situations. And since we've been doing some maps, um, you'll be able to make sense of it a little better. This is one of those where knowing the history part... It's helpful. Okay, so Isaiah chapter 7. Now, the previous chapter is very famous. That's the, 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 the year King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord, high exalted, lifted up. And, you know, with the angels crying, holy, holy, holy. And then the, Isaiah gets his lips cleansed. And then, who will I send? Who will go for me? And so, whoop, me, me, send me, I'll go. And then God gives him this message. Great, you're going to go and preach a message and nobody's going to pay attention. And so like, I always wonder, what was his response? Was it like, ooh. Okay, okay, never mind, I don't want to go. We don't know, but he, he went and preached this message. Next story is Isaiah 7. And we won't read every verse, but I want you to see the, the big pictures of what's going on here. So in the days of Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah. All right, what's Judah? J Judah is southern. So Judah's down here. All right, so what is the capital of Judah? Jerusalem. 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 Very good. Jerusalem. All right, so Israel's to the north. What's the next nation in the ancient world above Israel? Anybody know? Lebanon. Syria. 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 Okay. And then you go a little, I'll say a little, a good bit further up. What's the big nation up there that's going to be a looming presence later? Ah, uh, Syria. Okay? Two different places, right? So this happens while there's still a king of Judah. So when is this prophecy? Is it pre 
during or post-exile. It's pre. You know this is a pre-exile prophecy. Right? And it's kind of a narrative. So when that happened, the king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria. So what's Rezin the king of? Syria. Syria, the, the, the north neighbor to Israel. So Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel. So who's the king of Israel? Pekah. Pekah. Yeah, there we go. Something like that. And then who was the king of Judah? Ahaz. So there's Rezin, there's Pekah, and Ahaz. That's a Z. I need to take courses on public writing. Ahaz. So those are our main players. Okay, so here's what's happening. So it says, they came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. Now, who's doing the attacking? These two guys have teamed up, and they're going to attack Judah, King Ahaz. How do you think they feel about that? Scared, right? It's terrifying. Two nations united. How many tribes were in the northern kingdom? Ten. How many were in the southern kingdom? So just in terms of sheer numbers, should Judah have anything to be worried about? Well, from a political standpoint, absolutely. All right, so, but they hadn't hadn't successfully done it yet. When the house of David was, David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the other name for Israel. Syria was in league with Ephraim. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, so who's the character that came in here? It's the prophet. So now the Lord said to Isaiah the prophet, go out, meet Ahaz, you and Shirjabab, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah have devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the, <clears throat> in the midst of it, says the Lord God. It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, that's the capital, the head of Damascus is resin, and within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in the faith, you will not be firm at all. What did Isaiah tell Ahaz? Just summarize that message. That was a long paragraph. Don't be afraid, because I'm about to kill the Ephraimites, the Israelites. So this ain't going to happen. This, this won't happen at all. Don't worry about these two guys partnering together because I'm going to save you. Okay, so is foretelling or foretelling going on? Both. Okay, this, this passage has both. There's a lot of forth. God's hashing out what's happening, but he's also talking about what's going to happen. And the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask for a sign of the Lord your God. So... The idea is Ahaz can name the sign, and God will do it to prove that this is true. Okay? You understand the scenario? So if God said, I'm making this promise to you, ask for a sign. I'll do some sign to prove to you that I'm going to do it. Now we'll summarize the rest. Ahaz goes, eh, I'm not going to do that. Why do you think he doesn't want to do that? And so God gives him a sign anyway. Let's pick up in that sign. It says, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. All right, so Ahaz, the sign given to Ahaz is that a child will be born called Emmanuel, and a little further, he shall eat curds and honey, and when he knows how to refuse good and choose evil, for before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose good, the land of these two kings, 
you dread will be deserted. So a son's going to be born, and before he's two or three years old, these two nations are going to be destroyed. Well, who's the son? Jesus. Oh, well, okay, so let's just think about it for a second. If it's Jesus, how useful of a sign is this? So timing-wise, we're like almost a millennia later. This child's going to be born. By the time he's born, Ahaz, you'll know that this isn't going to happen. Well, by then, a millennia has gone by, right? Okay? You with me? That's a little weird, isn't it? All right, so let's just, there's a little more drama that goes on, but let's jump down and start in verse chapter 1, verse 8. Okay? Are with me? Then the Lord said to me, Isaiah, Take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Maharshala Hashbaz. I love that name. Someone please name your child that one day. Maharshala Hashbaz. So name the child Maharshala Hashbaz. So he got a reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of um, Jerobachiah, to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess. And now to Isaiah, who is the prophetess? His wife. And she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, call his name Maharshala Hashbaz. So they already got a tablet. And they said, this belongs to who? Maharshala Hashbaz. And then the child is born. What are they naming? Maharshala Hashbaz. So whose tablet is this? Maharshala Hashbaz. Y'all are laughing. You should be able to say it by now. Okay. <laughs> it says, For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus, the spoil of Samaria, will be carried away. So Damascus and sorry, Damascus and Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. So before this child is old enough to say mom and dad. So very young age, this is going to happen. All right, let's just keep going. The Lord spoke to me again, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river. What do you think the river is? This Euphrates. The river is coming. You didn't like this little river down here. You weren't happy with my river. So I'm going to send you a river. It'll come from up here. Is there a literal river coming down to get God's people? A literal river? No. This is the image, right? The Syrians are coming. I'm going to send the river. It says, Mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels, go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. So it's not just killing Syria and Israel. Where's it headed? It's coming down to you, Ahaz. It's coming down to your people, Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. Stop just shy of what? This is death. What is this? Near death. All right. He's killing Syria and Israel. He's not killing Judah. He's getting that close. That's what's going to happen here. To the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land. Oh, Emmanuel. <coughs> well, what's written on the tablet? This prophecy. Maharshala Hashbaz is Emmanuel. Well, what's Emmanuel mean? God with us. Well, how is God with us with Maharshala Hashbaz? In wrath. See what it says? Be broken, you peoples. Be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. Why? For God is with us, Emmanuel. And that's not good news. 
God with us in what sense? Judgment. Judgment. So Assyria, before Marshallah Hashbaz is two years old, or can say mom or dad, whatever age that is for that child, I guess a little relative, the king of Assyria in the image of a flood is going to come down and the wrath of God and all of its fury and presence is coming to Judah. And by this much, they're going to survive. So do you see the message here? Is this a message of hope? <laughs> right? There's a little bit of hope in it. So it's really more of a prophet anticipating wrath, right? Now what's the tension here, though, with this interpretation of that text? <laughs> the New Testament. He said the New Testament. Why do you say the New Testament? Okay? Because it's given as the message of hope. This passage, in yeah. what way? Jesus. The child is born, Emmanuel is with you now. Yeah, so this in the New Testament is quoted as being fulfilled by Jesus instead of Mahershala Hashbaz. So what in the world is going on? Let's go to the next chapter. We'll read a few more verses and you'll see. So, same main theme. We're just pushing forward. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Well, who was in anguish? That's people, right? But there's going to be no gloom. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot and the tramping warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So does the prophecy end with wrath or does it end with restoration? Restoration. So sure, Mahershala Hashbaz in a certain sense is the Emmanuel child. But not capital T, the Emmanuel child. There's another child who will be God with us. Did God come with us in his fury and wrath that time? It's your question. Yes, he did. And he poured it all out. But that cup was drank. And Christ is with us, wrath absorbed. So it is a glory text. He is on the throne of David. So you see what's going on here? There's calling out sin. There's wrath is coming. Judgment, condemnation is certain. But restoration is coming. That's just a common theme throughout the Old Testament. We're out of time, so let's just walk real quick through these others. So the text, when you're reading them, the texts are structured around oracles. So if you read through Isaiah and it doesn't feel like every section is related to every other section, it's because it's not. Okay? Um, there's a lot of ways in which Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, kind of like anthologies. It's collections of these stories put together. They're not necessarily in a specific chronological sequence. Isaiah has prophecies in five chapters. Then in chapter 6, he gets called to become a prophet. Well, which order do you think that happened in in real life? You know, he was called first, right? But this the story's not presented that way. So when you're studying the prophets, look for how big is this story and read that story as that story. And then when you read the next section, figure out how big is the story. Subheadings help. And a lot of Bible subheadings will give you those sections. So read in oracles. Most books have little to no book length 
structure, unless it's super short like Jonah. Jonah's very direct. It's connected. Longer books, very seldom is their book length structure. Prophets are filled with vivid imagery and non-literal language, meaning that river never ever flooded its banks and came down to Judah, right? That was symbolic of something else God was doing. You see that all over the Old Testament, all over the prophets, very vivid language. Many prophecies are written in poetry, which you read poetry a little differently. There's a little more freedom in wording, um, and it's a little more rigid in structure because of that. And in English, unfortunately, doesn't flow that well. Because Hebrew poetry and English poetry are radically different. They write in parallel structure. We write in rhyme or in uh, instead of meter. Right? For them, it, it's, it's parallelism. So they would just say the same statement twice in two completely different ways. And then there's a lot of chiasms where whatever they say first, second, and third, they'll say third, second, and first. And it, it makes this pattern. This is very different. So just like for us, I could say knock, knock. You know what comes next. And their culture, parallelism and chiasms were part of it. And so when you read it and wonder, why was it worded like that? In Hebrew, it's well-done poetry. Translate poetry, and you lose some of that. So just know that when you're going through. That's, that's why it's like that. And then some prophecies have what we call near-far tension. Near-far tension. And that's the reason I use that passage in particular tonight, is because it's an excellent example of near-far tension. Is the prophecy about Mahershalah Hashbaz, or is the prophecy about Jesus? Yes. Yes, it's, it's both. Both and. So chapter 9 couldn't in any sense be about Mahershala Hashbaz. Right? And the immediate context of chapter 7 and 8 seems like it's exclusively about Mahershala Hashbaz. And you have this tension between, how can you have both? Well, the way you can have both is you can have a Mahershala Hashbaz, and then you can have a Jesus. And there's a lot of passages like that in the Old Testament. And you'll see that as you read through the prophets. Look for that tension, and you will find it. Okay, sorry, that was, I felt like we are moving quick there at the end. Any questions on the prophets in general? If you're looking for a question on a specific prophecy, we're probably not going to go there. But any general prophet questions in the Old Testament before we close out? Do I? One letter on. Oh wow. Okay. You have now arrived. I've arrived. That's because that word is Hebrew, not English. If it was English, it wouldn't be spelled like that. It'd have it'd have extra letters and H's and maybe <laughs> eight more eight more letters. I don't know. Okay. All right. So. Before we pray, um, any specific prayer requests tonight before?